Most people, let me, let me ask you if you can recall this. Most people can remember at least a little bit the first time they went off a high dive. Remember that? Because there's nothing like that if you've never gone off the high dive. You might have gone off the low, but when you get up on the high, there's something that happens to you. At least normal people like me. I think that's normal. When you get up there, somebody changed the height because you look up at the high dive and it looks at a certain height. And once you get up there, it is like three times higher than what you pictured it would be. It is a terrifying experience. And if, you, so you know what it's like if you've done that to have the butterflies in your stomach and holding onto the railings and people behind you telling you, you got to go, you got to go, and you don't know what you're going to do. Because if you turn around to go back down the ladder, that is just the most demoralizing, embarrassing thing. You turn in your man card if you do that. And so you got to do something. So you step out, and I, I could tell this a lot longer story, but we don't have time today. But when you jump off the high dive, there is a feeling that you have in your like stomach. I don't even know where. It just permeates everything. And, and, there, and the first time you feel that moment where it is sheer terror. And every... It, like. Weird things happen, contortions happen, strange sounds might come out of your body, starts doing stuff, and then you're suspended. You just feel that moment where like, you feel like I'm out here and there's nothing and you just, time slows down, and then all of a sudden it just accelerates and you're falling and by the time you hit, you have long thought you should have hit and that feeling is just completely out of control. You know that feeling. You go into the water, you think you're dead, you come back up and you're alive and you know what you do? You go, I want to do that again. <laughs> when you did that, you took a risk. It might have been a minor risk, but you took a risk. What you did was you, there was a movement that involved real perceived danger for the purpose of a potentially worthwhile outcome. And that's kind of what risk is. And it involves that feeling where, where you're hanging, you're dangling, you have that, uh, sometimes it lasts longer, but afterwards you kind of want to do it again. One of my favorite comedians is Stephen Wright, and I'm going to tell you something he said that I can never say like he said if you know Stephen Wright. And he said, that his girlfriend asked him, how are you feeling? And he said, well, you know that, you know when you're sitting in a chair and you lean back so you're just on two legs, and you lean too far so you almost fall over, but the last second you catch yourself. I feel that all the time. That's that sense of risk, that moment. And here's what we're going to present to you in this series that was fantastically started last week by Tom Burns um, about risk takers. There's something about taking a risk, and risk is not just part of life, it is actually an intentional part of God's toolkit to do stuff in your life. When you become a follower of him, when you become somebody who trusts Jesus Christ, he will fairly consistently present you with opportunities to, to accomplish something that will require some risk. Risk is, is it's in God's tool belt, and he uses it really often. Now, we have to decide whether we're going to cooperate, whether we're going to go with the opportunity. And a whole lot of us can hold back and say, ah, it's just like we heard last week. Um, it's too risk, I'm too risk averse. I, I calculate the risk isn't worth the return, so I'm just going to, I'm fine. Somebody else can do that. But you're going to hear this over the next several weeks. You want the fullest life God has for you. 
Do you want to grow in Him the way He intends and designed for you to grow? Do you want to become more like His Son, Jesus? Do you want life to the fullest? Then there are going to be multiple times presented, sometimes subtle, sometimes very obvious, where you're presented with the chance to take a risk. And again, it's, it's for the purpose of a potentially worthwhile outcome. And every point in somebody's life, they're going to have that happen. And we're going to, I'm just going to come right out and ask you over these next few weeks what that risk is for you, what the one is in front of you now, and how willing you would be to step out and take that risk. Because, see, here's something that's true. The Bible talks about having faith. And it, it makes this, actually makes a statement. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's a pretty strong statement. The exercise of something called faith is, is central and paramount to a person's relationship with and growth from the God who made them. But faith and risk are always dancing partners. You don't have faith exercised without risk being present in some form. And the most significant impact that's made in a person's life, the most direction-shaping choices that happen are ones that fall along with when those two are dancing. Risk and faith are happening in a person's life. And so we uh, talked about, we started last week talking about what risk is. And you heard some really good things worth going back and listening to if you weren't here. But it involves some danger. It involves some fear. It involves some courage and some, and some volition, some choice. We also heard, and this is very, very important, that taking risk from God's perspective is not to be done for the sake of self-advancement or just because you think you want something or you think life is going to be better. It is always tied in it's, it's, not, it's not tied into it just having a sense of exhilaration. There, there's, groups called, there's a group called Thrill Seekers. That it's a whole club that you can join just because we want the rush. We want another roller coaster. We want to do something that gets that feeling again. That's not how God presents risk. He doesn't ask you to do it for that purpose, just so you feel more alive. He doesn't ask you to do it for your own agenda or your best idea of what he has in mind. The risk that he calls us to is always consistent with his plan, his opportunity, his prompts, and his purposes. And so there are different kinds of risk that God invites us to take. There's, there's risk to, uh, to combat something or take a stand for something. There's, to, there's risk to achieve a preferred condition for, for his sake, to advance another's state for him, or to meet a need or grasp an opportunity. And so today... We are going to look at uh, some risk, and, and today's is the risk-taking shepherd boy, which if you didn't figure out, his name is David, eventually became king of Israel, and he's got a very, very famous story, and another one that's not maybe quite so famous. I'm going to invite you to look at both of them. So if you have a Bible or access one, I invite you to take a look with me in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. We're going to see two risks that this young guy takes. And again, one of these is, gonna, is, is the familiar one, and one is maybe the less familiar one, perhaps, to you. And the first one involves a guy named Goliath, okay? Now, now you probably, whether you've been in church your whole life or not, chances are you've heard of David and Goliath. It gets used as a vernacular for an underdog versus a, you know, somebody who's an overwhelming favorite. Uh, it gets used a lot with people who've never even heard the story. And for the sake of time, I'm going to, here, can I encourage you to do something? I would really encourage you to go and read on your own 
read through 1 Samuel 17 and read the next 10 chapters because what we're going to see is going to come out of that. And I think you will be fascinated by a whole lot of what you read there, some details you might not have recognized. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a flyover and some snapshots to remind us a little bit about what's going on here. And so this first risk that the shepherd boy takes is the risk of standing up for God to those who oppose him. Now, this is early in the days of the kingdom of Israel, and they are a threat uh, by enemies both outside their borders and those who are right up against them. And one of those is the Philistines, who you may have had that, heard that term before. I'm just going to start reading a f- f- few verses in chapter 17 and then kind of scatter through and point out something. Verse uh, 17.1. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp, and then if you go on, it says that Saul is, and Saul is the king of Israel, and he's assembling uh, his people. And there's a valley. If you look at verse 3, Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet in his head and wore a coat of scale, uh, armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves. A bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. And basically when he comes out and he shouts defiance against the God of Israel and against the Israeli people, and he issues a challenge. When he does that, he is representing the Philistines who are a, a group of five city-states in a valley nearby where God had promised his, his people the land and they ocu- they're occupiers of the land. I know it's hard to understand, but there are times, there has been times in Palestine where there are two different factions saying they own the land. Can you imagine that? Same thing. That's going on here. And it just mentions some stuff. Now, he stands up and he challenges one person to come out and represent the nation of Israel into the middle of the valley. And he challenges to something that's called single combat. It's not an uncommon thing in that age. Where to dispense with all the messiness of death and blood and war, they just say, look, you bring out your, your champion. They also call it champion warfare. You bring out your champion and we'll see. And they always invoke the gods whatever gods they had, we'll see which God prevails, which God is true, which God gives victory. And whoever is the victor of that one battle will represent the entire army and whatever the, the winning army wants, they get. If, the, if they want to dispel them, they can. If they want spoils from them, they can do them. And this guy does that. Now, you probably saw that I read really quickly over the description of Goliath that was rather odd, right? Because there are some things that are true about this guy and Goliath is most likely uh, belonged to a race of aboriginal tribes that were around there. There are the Anakim, the Avim, and the Rephaim. And some of them, the Avim uh, in particular, lived in Palestine. And they were, some legend had it that they were the, the children of the Nephilim in Genesis 5. I won't even t- explain that to you right now. Between a- angels cohabiting with men, some people just said, these are just, they're monsters, they're giants in the land. They represented this. Now, what's, you know what's funny about this? This has been called legend by people. It's like, no, there's no nine-foot people in the world. Come on, do you know that archaeological digs in that area have now discovered bone remains that when they put them together, they say this, these people generally were at least eight feet tall. It's a pretty much known thing. How about that? But this guy, here's what it says about him. Do you see his body armor in verse 5? How much it weighed? His body armor, basically, your translation may have this. Depending on how you do the weights and measures, 
He had between 126 and 155 pounds of body armor that he's carrying. That's, that's more than a lot of us in the room weigh. And he's got that in body armor. And then he's got this javelin, the point of which weighs 15 pounds. You ever try to throw a 15-pound bowling ball? He's going to chuck this thing, and it's, that's how much it weighs. And it talks about how tall he is. And again, based on the, rate, the rates of measure, probably the closer we can get, it's about 9 feet 6 inches tall. Now, let's give you a little perspective on that. There are four posts in this room, right? See the four posts? On every one of those posts, if you can make it out, there's a white chalk line at 9 feet 6 inches tall. In fact, here, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like, if you're near the post, somebody stand up near the post. Just, would you stand up near the post? Okay, just somebody, just stand, somebody stand up. Oh, they got babies in the way. Somebody stand up. Okay, okay, see where that person is and look at the perspective of what... Now, David is a Jewish young man, probably, we're going to see, probably between 15 and 17 years old. Chances are about five and a half feet tall. Imagine what that is. Thank you for standing there. That's the challenge that he's presented with in single combat. But there's something that's true about David. And if, again, if you know the story, I'm just going to summarize this. Verse 12... David was a son, an Ephrathite named Jesse, who, had, who was from Bethlehem and Judah. Jesse had eight sons. In Saul's time, he was uh, old and well advanced in years. But Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. He names those three sons. The rest of the five were not. There's reason for that. The law required that every young man at the age of 20 went into the army. Mandatory, 20 years old. So the three oldest are presumably over 20, which means the five youngest are under 20, you can do the math on that and say, maybe there's twins in there, maybe there's more, more than one wife, it doesn't say, but chances are pretty good that people say David was probably 15 years old, maybe 16 or 17, and he is a shepherd boy. He has served in the king's court for a while, but, that, but he is tending the sheep. And he's running errands back and forth to, to, the, to the front to bring supplies. That's what he's doing. But when this happens, the risk comes, and while he's bringing the supplies... He hears this, the giant man. And this happens day after day after day. I mean, the taunts are there. And no one's responding. And everybody in Israel is cowering. In this, and and the, the, the king of Israel, Saul, has no answer. He's not going out there. And so it's a bad look for God's people. David, who is raised to know that Yahweh is the true and living God over all, he hears this and he's, just, he's almost too inexperienced not to know any better. And he says, what, what's going on here? Why is, what's the matter with you guys? His brothers mock him and try to send him back. And he goes, doesn't anybody want the victory that's going to happen? Because if a God is with us, why would, why would you be afraid of this nine and a half foot man with a bowling ball piercing, you know? They try to send him away. But David, as you know in the story, he volunteers himself. And Saul, in a hilarious little encounter, Saul says, okay, we're going to do that. Let's put my stuff on you. And he puts his tunic and his, and his armor on him. And he's like a kid like in a Halloween costume that's for an adult. He's just kind of standing there. And he goes, I can't do anything in this. And so they take it all off. He goes out, and he is a man, he's a young man who has defended sheep against wild animals. He has a sling. He, he takes five smooth stones. You probably are familiar with that. And he goes out, but don't miss what he says when he does. 
Now, if you look in um, verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog? You come at me with sticks, which is his sling. And the Philistine cursed David by the gods. Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. It's, a, it's an intimidation. You ever see guys who are getting ready to fight and they go to, you know, on the way in and they're screaming at each other and just trying to, there's only one guy doing it here. Except then David answers. Now he's, he's, he's yelling across this kind of ravine where they're all encamped. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin but I come against you in the name of Yahweh Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord, Yahweh, will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses. I mean, all of a sudden, this guy's getting emboldened. Now he's going to get a little... Listen to this. It's almost like he learned from the guy. You know the carcass thing you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, today, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there's a God in heaven. All those who are gathered here will know it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Now, it's funny as you never hear a single peep come out of the Israelite army. There's not a single, yeah, go on. I have a feeling, this is complete speculation, they're going, oh, man, they're, poop, they're pooping their pants over there. This guy's a, he's crazy. And then, if you read on, you see what happens. And I'm not even going to tell you the rest of the story. You can read it. But you know what happens. David becomes legend because of that. Now, there's something, there's some observations. And I think that the basis, here's, here's one of the observations. The basis for his risk was one thing. It wasn't, I'm going to make a name for myself. I think this is good. I think, you know, I, I, I know how to take this guy. The basis for his risk was in verse 45. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Don't miss that. I come as one sent by him and representing him, and he is, and the name he uses for God there is Yod, and the Almighty phrase means he is the commander of the forces of heaven. There's more power, far more power represented in, in that disclosure than there is in anything that the Philistine has, has marshaled against him. He did it, he took that risk in that name, and he did it for this purpose so that everybody will know. Did you see it, verse 47? It's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, but the battle is the Lord, and he will be the one who does it. Now, here's a couple other observations, just very, very quickly, because I want to compare this to another risk David took. This is the one we have all heard about. But here's something, and we're going to bring this down to the risk that's in front of you in your life, the ones that God may bring or has in front of you right now, the opportunities. One is, is there something going on here that no one else is stepping up? I mean, there's a whole army of people and not a single one has even considered it. No one has talked about it. No one has tried. And, and David is probably the least physically prepared of anybody on the hillside, right, to do this. He's got no armor that fits. He has no experience in this warfare. He hasn't been in the army yet. He, he doesn't have the resources. He's, he, he's not prepared for it. What, here's the other observation. What he used in order to answer the risk 
was not what he could find that he thought would, he could depend on. It was simply what he already had. What he had was experiences as a follower of God. What he had was a way to defend sheep. And he had a sling. And that's it. He used what he had. Here's another observation. He did this. They had a conversation. What, what rewards do you get for doing this? They said, oh, you can marry the king's daughter. And he's like, eh. He wound up doing that, but not because of this. He wasn't really taken with that. Now, I don't know if he was young enough that he was still hating the girls yet, or he was really intrigued by the girls, but it wasn't to get chicks that he was making this risk. So, he did it for the glory of the one true God, not his own glory. Risk, as God presented, is always first and foremost for the glory of the one true God. And he is glorified in a lot of ways, but one of those ways is simply when people say, I trust him and I will do things for him, even things that seem crazy. And he did it with a faith that God would manifest his power. Again, verse 47, that is the power of God, not spears, not swords, not the size of an army. He entered into that risk. Now, that's too quick an overview of that. But if you get that idea, let me just, let me just draw us in a little bit. Let me ask you to come with me into the story. Because you and I have never been in that setting and probably never will be. Some of us have been in the military, and you kind of know what some of those fears are like. But we haven't been in a setting exactly like this, especially an army that's, that's all about which God is which and how to make a decision. But there's a way that we can draw the principles to our own lives. And among them are these, not, ex- not exhaustively, but among them. There are times when somebody, we find ourselves saying this phrase. See if you've ever thought this or heard it. Somebody should say something. Somebody should do something. Have you ever thought that? There's a situation going on. It's not a good one. It does not represent the, what's right or good. It maybe even is a big challenge to, to God himself or the name of Christ. But somebody should do something. Somebody should say something. Can I suggest something to you that if that thought crosses your mind, chances are pretty good that that prompt means you're the person. And you would find yourself saying, I don't want to think that anymore. When somebody should do something, when somebody should say something, often, especially among the the, the carriers of the Holy Spirit, it is a prompt that's saying somebody in the mirror needs to look. Is there anybody in the room who is facing anything that you feel like, oh, well, I'm not qualified for that. Well, I'm not the one to do it. I'm not trained. Is there anybody who is less qualified to do what's in front of you than David was to take on this guy? That's what the risk is about. Can we, can we, just, can we just dispel the myth that says, I'm not the right person and this isn't the right time? When there's opportunity and somebody ought to do something and God is stirring, then it is the right time. And perhaps you are the right person. We'll talk more about this in the next few weeks. But we have seen this lived out right here among us with our church because you'll hear more of 
in our final weeks here about what God has done and what he's doing and what he's stirred. But can I tell you, too, that we have got some people here who, when we saw the need of where our church is going and what, and what its needs are, and, and knowing that God has positioned us for a season of impact, if somebody will step up, we have people, and you've met them. Next week, there's going to be an announcements about more of them who said, I don't think I'm the right person, and I don't think this is the right time. And you know what? They stood up anyway. And I could not be more excited about what God is doing and is going to do because that's a risk and that's where faith dances with it. And that's when God's power moves. We've already seen it. I've seen it in my life since this whole journey started. I can say more about that, but let, let me just, let me ask you. I'm not the right person. This isn't the right time. It never is. And that's when the risk comes in. What challenge has there been to God's way around you? Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's at your school. What challenge has there been to God's ways that you're encountering that's a bit of provocation? It's been an intimidation. It's fear-causing. And you find yourself saying, somebody ought to say something. Somebody ought to do something. You will come alive if when God prompts you, you find yourself saying, I'm not ready and I don't think I'm the guy. But like we heard last week and in David's case, it's the same thing. But if God needs somebody to do this or wants them, I'll take the risk. Can I just suggest this to you? The greatest stories, you're going to hear some stories of baptism today at the end, but the greatest stories of how God moved in people's lives, how he's changed people's directions, how he... He, he reformed relationships. He brought healing to things. The greatest stories of people who got stronger in their faith. The one consistent thread you will find in almost every one of those is that they were not ready for it. They were not prepared. They were not gifted enough. They didn't think they were the person. And they st- stepped forward, did something in the name of Yahweh Almighty because the, the risk was there and God did something. The character that forms inside a person's heart the level to which we trust him deeper, the, the way we get stronger to know him is not just by saying, let me memorize some more verses, let me go to church and sing some more songs. It's by stepping out when the chance is there and say, I will be your man, I will be your woman, and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. But I'll be there because I'm present. And God, you can do whatever you want in it. Some of those same stories are stories of initial failure and pain. But when you follow those stories, the long term, you will generally hear people say they never regret taking the risk. Now, that is a risk the shepherd boy took. That's one that's the, the familiar one. It's the one that you stand up for God against those who are, who are opposing him. But I want you to see another risk that, that the same boy took. Not that much long later. That shows a different kind of risk. And one that you may not be as familiar with. I want you to see, after this, after this battle's done, I'm just going to read a few verses in chapter 18, then we're going to go to chapter 23. After the battle, people are celebrating. And it says, verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, was singing and dancing, and they had written a song, and it was a big, this one was like, like all over Pandora. It, you know, like it was, like it had spread. This, was, this thing was, and, and they come out and they're singing this song. It's like this 
top 40 tune, and, it's, and they're dancing and singing, and with the tambourines, and they dance, and they sang this song, and I don't know how it went, but here's the, here are the words. Saul has slain his thousands. David his tens of thousands. It was really, you know, it was, had a good beat, and you could dance to it. But in that song, which was getting sung, the king, who was a very, very uh, self-conscious man, very insecure already, a man with emotional problems, his response to verse 8, Saul was very angry. He just won the freedom of his people through his army. He was the one who let David go. He could celebrate in that. But because David was getting, wait, what's that? What's, what, what did I hear? Saul was angry. The fra- this refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. Does that seem ridiculous to you? But see, that's what jealousy can do, insecurity can do. His focus is not on the glory of God. It's on his, his heritage. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now, I'm going to summarize some stuff that happened while you turn to chapter 23. Saul brings David into his court. He allows him to play his music for him. Um, But then an evil spirit comes upon Saul and amplifies this jealousy that he's got, and he's looking for ways. So he does a bunch of maneuvers to try to find a way for this new hero, this young hero, as he's growing older, to be eliminated. So what he'll do is he takes him and he sends him and dispatches him to other areas where there are fronts of war, assuming that he's going to get killed. And every time he does, they have victory. It just keeps getting worse. He keeps getting frustrated. He tries to get one of his daughters to be a spy and marry David and tell him all this stuff. And, and they wound up spying and selling him out. Some. But he can't, he's, he's overcome with his jealousy. And he attempts to eliminate David. And so David eventually has to flee. He becomes good friends with Saul's son. His son helps him get away, Jonathan. And there's so much great stuff that you need to read in this. But he, he flees. And then you get to 1 Samuel 23. And David has fled, and he is, he's gone to this little oasis in the Judean desert. It's along the western shore of the Dead Seas. And it says in verse, uh, verse 1, uh, David, David was told, look, the Philistines... Uh, yeah, uh, chapter 23, yeah, ver, uh, the end of chapter 23, sorry. David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now, that's this oasis period. Now, here's a picture of En Gedi today. It is an oasis desert. That looks really cool. And it's got water, and people use it all the time. But, but it's a very interesting topography around there because if you back away from there, you'll see that, that there, along, just not far from this water, there's a very rugged hillside. There's cliffs that are very sheer. And in those cliffs, there are some natural caves. That, that those, they're just openings. A lot of wild animals that go in there, but some people, when they're fugitives, would go, and there's, there's many of them in, in the same area. In fact, in this picture, it is consi- one of the, one of the uh, I think it might be the center one or one to the right of, the, of those caves, historically has been said they believe that might be the cave where what's going to happen next happens. David goes there to hide in, in the caves of En Gedi. Saul gets wind of it. And that verse, now we're in chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David's in the ge- desert of En Gedi. He's got his spy network out. They tell him where he's hiding. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, set out to look for David and his men. Now, in the time David had gone, he had got a ragamuffin group of followers, some freedom fighters, people who were just loyal to him, who didn't like how he was being treated, 
And he's got this group that he's gathered, that, that they're living out there in this area together. He knows he's being hunted. He knows the king wants... He's already had him shuck spears at him twice trying to kill him. And when he flees, he's running literally from his life. Now he hears 3,000 men are coming to this area. They're descending on this area. He's hiding among the caves in Engedi. And then something happens. I'm just going to read a little bit. Verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, this is... This is the Bible. This is not me, okay? Everybody says I like to talk about, you know, poop jokes and bodily fluids. I just, I'm just reading. <laughs> Saul's got th- these men, 3,000 men, they're coming. There's a, there were more purposes for these caves. They were secluded, and this is where, this is kind of like the men's room. These are like the poor johns of the day. And so people would go in, and they would go to the bathroom. That's what they would do. They would crawl along the ledge. They'd go down because that way the smell was contained. It wasn't, you know, no one was going to attack when they, were, when they were vulnerable. Saul's got robe, royal robes that he's wearing. He's got a whole entourage that are following him. He makes his way probably along a little footpath that you can't make out there, and he goes into this cave. Now, this is, I, I believe this is God's sense of humor. I think it's God's sovereignty. What are the odds of this happening? He goes in that cave to relieve himself, it says. And then it says... David and his men were far back in that cave. Can you imagine? You're hiding, and all of a sudden you hear noise, you're back up, and the very king who wants to kill you walks in, and you think, we are totally hosed. But instead of coming at you and, sh- and telling his men to surround you, and you're trapped, he starts taking his clothes off, and he squats, or whatever he does, I don't know. Some stand, some sit. I'm not sure what the facilities were like there. Probably didn't have a sign saying, if it's not clean, call the management. He's just in there. He's got his robe off. He lays his robe. He goes to another section. And when that happens, the men, David's men, verse 4, said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. David crept up unnoticed. And look what he does. He cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Didn't kill him. Didn't confront him. Didn't trap him. He just went to where the robe was laying. I'm not sure how long Saul typically went when he went. Some of us go longer than others. Perhaps he's got a magazine or two, and he, take, he cuts the corner of the robe. Afterward, David was conscious, sir, even for cutting off a corner of the robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him. There's all kinds of important truth in here that we're going to skip for now. He's the anointed of the Lord. With these words, he rebuked his men, didn't allow them to attack Saul. Saul left the cave, went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. Now, picture, there's a conversation that's going to happen, probably across a very rugged terrain, so that even though their voices could carry from there, you can't get to him before he could get away now. And he calls out to Saul, my lord the king. Saul looks behind him, David bowed down, prostrated himself uh, with his face to the ground, and he said to Saul, And you know what he's going to say? Why are you doing this? Can can we figure something out? Can I convince you that I'm not against you? Can can we see that God, God is the God of both of us and he doesn't want us to do this? He tries to have a reasonable conversation with Saul. If you keep reading, again, I'm just going to summarize. You'll find 
that Saul seems to have at least a temporary sense of, of remorse about it. Because Saul, and when he does, he says, he says, I had the chance. And David holds out the corner of the tassel. So he could have said, I had the chance, and Saul wouldn't have believed him. He goes, I, I had the chance. See the corner of the tassel? And if you're Saul, you know what you do? You look down. And he had to look and seen that I, I was there. He was there. He's not making this up. David presents Saul with mercy and an opportunity. Saul says, you're obviously stronger with God than I am, and we need to, I need a different direction in my life. It, they part ways. Now, that is the first of two encounters that are very similar to each other because if you, and I'm not going to take the time to do it now, if you look at chapter 26, and this is why I want to encourage you to read this, almost an identical thing happens, except this time it's in a camp, an encampment. David and his men come upon Saul because Saul has gone home or he's gone his way and he said, oh, I'm remorseful. And then he turns right around and he pursues David again. He proves that there's nothing changed in his heart. The jealousy, the power of the evil spirit, they come upon him and he just is obsessed with eliminating David. So even though mercy has been given to him, he doesn't respond. Saul has his men in the encampment. This is on, on, on flat ground. David and his men come at night. They see him. He asks a, couple, a guy to go with him. He comes, and sure enough, he, they're all sleeping. In fact, it says it's a God-enhanced sleep among the soldiers. You could look at that and go, wow, he's given every opportunity. They come upon Saul again. Saul's asleep, and, his, and David's companion says, one stroke's all I need. God obviously brought him here for you to slay him. Just, I could just drive it straight into the ground. He's dead. David repeats his statements where he says, that's not my prerogative. But instead, they took, take a couple things that are by Saul's head, that, like his sword and, and a pitcher. They go off across another valley. They call to the guy who's supposed to be guarding Saul. They yell at him. They taunt him a little bit, say, hey, great bodyguard you got. Great bodyguard. They look up and they go, and they hold up his sword and they go, see this? David has the same type of appeal to Saul at that moment. Saul goes, oh, I can't believe how godly you are. And he decides to try to kill him another time. Now, I want to suggest to you that David, the shepherd boy, took many risks in his life, but this risk is every bit as risky as the one he took when he went up against Goliath, but it took a very different form. Because sometimes the risk requires us to put ourselves in a place of battle when there is no other opportunity. Other times, it is just as risky to offer a second chance. To say to something that you think you've concluded, this is beyond remedy, this is beyond, I don't want to be, I don't want things to be restored with this, but to offer a second chance to somebody who doesn't deserve it. Somebody who's not shown no sides of, signs of wanting it. See, David, what David does is David defers judgment to God about this person's condition, their motives, and their actions. And even though he has firsthand seen him do horrific things, he still says, I'm not going to make assumptions about what, what he's capable of. You know what David is doing? You know what he's reflecting when he does that? He's reflecting a character of God, which in the New Testament is called agape. In the Old Testament, it's called hesed. A covenant loyalty. And you've probably heard this. There was a wedding yesterday. You might have been read there. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. always hopes. It always perseveres. 
David took a risk by offering love and hope to somebody who he'd seen no evidence of any kind of change from. He left the door open for it to happen. You know, he didn't go rushing into Saul's presence. He didn't put himself in that position, but he left the door open for God to work. He showed mercy. Jude 23 says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. I won't dig all that out for you, but the context of that is there are people who are doing really horrible things. There are people who are doing things that you don't want anything to do with, but show mercy to them. Even while you hate what they've done and what they are doing, leave room, take a risk with them. Let them have an opportunity for God to work in their lives. The risk might be presenting yourself to them in such a way, presenting God's truth and his mercy to them in such a way that they hear it and it's offered and say, there's another way to do this. Can I gently share with you what it could be? James 2 talks about that same mercy. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then it uses this phrase. And this, memorize this. Because this is a risk. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Memorize it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Can I tell you something I'm grateful for that I think you should be too? You know what I'm grateful for? That Almighty God, who has every bit of authority and right to punish me for my rebellion against Him, that my God gave me this kind of risk. He took a risk with me. Aren't you glad that God took a risk with you? Can you not think of a time where you did not deserve it? Where you're far from Him? Where you might have given up on Him? But he took a risk. He took the risk of mercy. He took the risk of second chances. He said to you, I still love you. I still want to give you an opportunity. There are a whole lot of us who are sitting here today fundamentally different people than we were five years ago. And it only happens. And it's only continuing to happen. Because a God of mercy is a God of risk. He took the risk with you. Here's a natural question I got for you. Not only are you willing to receive that gift for yourself from him, Can I just bring it to where you and I live? Is there a situation in your life? Is there a relationship? Is there something that you have just written off entirely? You really don't care anymore. You don't want that anymore. You have drawn conclusions and judgments about somebody or some place or something. It might be somebody in the room. Would you follow the lead of the character of your creator? Would you be willing to say, I'm willing to take a risk. I'm willing to withhold judgment. I'm willing to to defer it to, to God instead of myself. You've written them off, but perhaps the risk would be to, one more time, present yourself, present the situation, present the opportunity. You don't have to promise to be their best friend. You don't have to promise that everything's going to be exactly like it was before, but to move toward them with gentleness, with a soft heart, with the risk of mercy. And to see what God might do when somebody's given a second chance or a third. 
you have a shepherd boy presented to us who took, took a number of risks. One was just the one we love to shout about. It's the one we cheer on. David and Goliath, look how he rose up and he fought. He, he, he beat City Hall. Man, he took on the establishment. He just, he, you know, he beat the odds. We cheer that one on. That same shepherd boy went to somebody who did not want him around and wanted him eliminated. And when he had the chance to get even, he chose not to and offered by, with a risk a second chance, an opportunity. What does that risk look like for you right now? Could I dare you to ask God to tell you? Would you be willing to pray to him even where you sit right now and say, if you want me to take a risk in that situation with that person, with that group, and I will do so in your power and in your name, in spite of the fear. And I will, pres- I will do that. Trusting the results to you. He- here's what we need to understand. You're going to hear this later in the series. The results aren't the important thing. There are no promises here. Saul continued to, to pursue David. He still-, he still was his mortal enemy. To the day of his death, Saul was hating David. It didn't work. Ah, but the power of God, the glory of God, and the character of God's person was amplified and and brought glory to him because he took the risk. What's that risk for you? Pray with me.